This is the SFF Audio Podcast. Today's podcast is a reading of Pickman's Model by H.P. Lovecraft. The narrator is Jim Moon. Join us after the story for a discussion of it. Pickman's Model by H.P. Lovecraft You needn't think I'm crazy, Elliot. Plenty of others have queerer prejudices than this. Why don't you laugh at Oliver's grandfather, who won't ride in a motor? If I don't like that damned subway, it's my own business. And we got here more quickly anyhow in the taxi. We'd have had to walk up the hill from Park Street if we'd taken the car. I know I'm more nervous than I was when you saw me last year, but you don't need to hold a clinic over it. There's plenty of reason, God knows, and I fancy I'm lucky to be sane at all. Why the third degree? You didn't used to be so inquisitive. Well, if you must hear it, I don't know why you shouldn't. Maybe you ought to anyhow, for you kept writing me like a grieved parent when you'd heard I'd begun to cut the art club and keep away from Pickman. Now that he's disappeared, I go round to the club once in a while, but my nerves aren't what they were. No, I don't know what's become of Pickman, and I don't like to guess. You might have surmised I had some inside information when I dropped him, and that's why I don't want to think where he's gone. Let the police find what they can. It won't be much, judging from the fact they don't know yet of the old North End place he hired under the name of Peters. I'm not sure I could find it again myself. Not that I'd ever try, even in broad daylight. Yes, I do know, or I'm afraid I know, why he maintained it. I'm coming to that. And I think you'll understand, before I'm through, why I don't tell the police. They would ask me to guide them, but I couldn't go back there, even if I knew the way. There was something there, and now I can't use the subway, or... And you may as well have your laugh at this too. Go down into cellars any more. I should think you'd have known I didn't drop Pickman for the same silly reasons that fussy old women like Dr. Reed or Joe Minow or Bosworth did. Morbid art doesn't shock me. And when a man has the genius Pickman had, I feel it an honour to know him, no matter what direction his work takes. Boston never had a greater painter than Richard Upton Pickman. I said it at first, and I say it still, and I never swerved an inch either when he showed that ghoul feeding. That, you remember, was when Mino cut him. You know it takes profound art and profound insight into nature to turn out stuff like Pickman's. Any magazine cover hack can splash paint around wildly and call it a nightmare or a witch's sabbath or a portrait of the devil. But only a great painter can make such a thing really scare or ring true. That's because only a real artist knows the actual anatomy of the terrible, or the physiology of fear. The exact sort of lines and proportions that connect up with latent insights, or hereditary memories of fright, and the proper colour contrasts and lighting effects to stir up the dormant sense of strangeness. 
I don't have to tell you why a Fuseli really brings a shiver, while a cheap ghost story frontspiece merely makes us laugh. There's something those fellows catch, beyond life, that they're able to make us catch for a second. Dore had it. Syme had it. Angarola of Chicago has it. And Pickman had it, as no man ever had it before. Or, I hope to heaven, will ever again. Don't ask me what it is they see. You know, in ordinary art, there's all the difference in the world between the vital breathing things drawn from nature, or models and the artificial truck that commercial small fry reel off in a bare studio by rule. Well, I should say that the really weird artist has a kind of vision which makes models, or summons up what amounts to actual scenes from the spectral world he lives in. Anyhow, he manages to turn out results that differ from the pretender's mince pie dreams in just about the same way that the life painter's results differ from the concoctions of a correspondence school cartoonist. If I had ever seen what Pickman saw... But no, here, let's have a drink before we go any deeper. Gad, I wouldn't be alive if I'd ever seen what that man, if he was a man, saw. You recall Pickman's forte was faces. I don't believe anyone since Goya could put so much sheer hell into a set of features, or a twist of expression. And before Goya, you have to go back to the medieval chaps who did the gargoyles and chimerae on Notre Dame and Mont Saint-Michel. They believed all sorts of things. And maybe they saw all sorts of things too, for the Middle Ages had some curious phases. I remember you're asking Pickman yourself once, the year before you went away, wherever in thunder he got such ideas and visions. Wasn't that a nasty laugh he gave you? It was partly because of that laugh that Reed dropped him. Reed, you know, had just taken up comparative pathology and was full of pompous inside stuff about the biological or evolutionary significance of this or that mental or physical symptom. He said Pickman repelled him more and more every day, and almost frightened him towards the last, that the fellow's features and expression were slowly developing in a way he didn't like, in a way that wasn't human. He had a lot of talk about diet, and said Pickman must be abnormal or eccentric to the last degree. I suppose you told Reed, if you and he had any correspondence over it, that he'd let Pickman's paintings get on his nerves or harrow up his imagination. I told him that myself, then. But keep in mind I didn't drop Pickman for anything like this. On the contrary, my admiration for him kept growing, for that ghoul feeding was a tremendous achievement. As you know, the club wouldn't exhibit it, and the Museum of Fine Arts wouldn't accept it as a gift, and I can add that nobody would buy it. So Pickman had it right in his house till he went. Now his father has it in Salem. You know Pickman comes from old Salem stock, and had a witch ancestor hanged in 1792. I got into the habit of calling on Pickman quite often, especially after I began to make notes for a monograph on weird art. Probably it was his work which put the idea into my head. And anyhow, I found him a mine of data and suggestions when I came to develop it. He showed me all the paintings and drawings he had about, 
including some pen and ink sketches that would, I verily believe, have got him kicked out of the club if any of the members had seen them. Before long I was pretty nearly a devotee, and would listen for hours like a schoolboy to art theories and philosophical speculations wild enough to qualify him for the Danvers Asylum. My hero worship, coupled with the fact that people generally were commencing to have less and less to do with him, made him get very confidential with me, and one evening he hinted that if I were fairly close-mouthed and none too squeamish, he might show me something rather unusual, something a bit stronger than anything he had in the house. You know, he said, there are things that won't do for Newbury Street, things that are out of place here and can't be conceived here anyhow. It's my business to catch the overtones of the soul, and you won't find those in a parvenu set of artificial streets on made land. Back Bay isn't Boston, it isn't anything yet, because it hasn't had time to pick up memories and attract local spirits. If there are any ghosts here, they're the tame ghosts of a salt marsh in a shallow cove. And I want human ghosts. The ghosts of beings highly organized enough to have looked on hell and known the meaning of what they saw. The place for an artist to live is in the North End. If any ascete was sincere, he'd put up with the slums for the sake of the massed traditions. God, man, don't you realize that places like that weren't merely made, but actually grew? Generation after generation lived and felt and died there. And in days when people weren't afraid to live and feel and die. Don't you know there was a mill on Copse Hill in 1632? and that half the present streets were laid out by 1650. I can show you houses that have stood two centuries and a half and more, houses that have witnessed what would make a modern house crumble into powder. What do moderns know of life and the forces behind it? You call the Salem witchcraft a delusion, but I'll wager my four times great-grandmother could have told you things. They hanged her on Gallows Hill, with Cotton Mather looking sanctimoniously on. Mather, damn him, was afraid someone might succeed in kicking free of this accursed cage of monotony. I wish someone had laid a spell on him, or sucked his blood in the night. I can show you a house he lived in, and I can show you another one he was afraid to enter, in spite of all his fine bold talk. He knew things he didn't dare put into that stupid magnanalia, or that puerile wonders of the invisible world. Look here, do you know the whole of the North End once had a set of tunnels that kept certain people in touch with other people's houses, and the burying ground, and the sea? Let them prosecute and persecute above ground, Things went on every day they couldn't reach, and voices laughed at night that they couldn't place. Why, man, out of ten surviving houses built before 1700 and not moved since, I'll wager that in eight I can show you something queer in the cellar. There's hardly a month that you don't read of workmen 
finding bricked-up arches and wells leading nowhere in this or that old place as it comes down. You should see the one near Henchman Street from the elevated last year. There were witches and what their spells summoned, pirates and what they brought in from the sea, smugglers, privateers, and, I tell you, people knew how to live and how to enlarge the bounds of life in the old times. This wasn't the only world a bold and wise man could know. <laughs> and to think today in contrast, with such pale pink brains that even a club of supposed artists gets shudders and convulsions if a picture goes beyond the feelings of a Beacon Street tea table. The only saving grace of the present is that it's too damn stupid to question the past very closely. What do maps and records and guidebooks really tell of the North End? Bah! And I guess I'll guarantee to lead you to 30 or 40 alleyways and networks of alleyways north of Prince Street that aren't suspected by ten living beings outside the foreigners that swarm them. And what do those dagos know of their meaning? No, Thurber, these ancient places are dreaming gorgeously and overflowing with wonder and terror and escapes from the commonplace. And yet... There's not a living soul to understand or profit by them. Or rather, there's only one living soul, for I haven't been digging around in the past for nothing. See here, you're interested in this sort of thing. What if I told you I've got another studio up there, where I can catch the night spirit of antique horror and paint things I couldn't even think of in Newbury Street? Naturally, I don't tell those cursed old maids at the club, with Reed, damn him, whispering as it is, that I'm some sort of monster bound down the toboggan of reverse evolution. Yes, Thurber, I decided long ago that one must paint terror as well as beauty from life. So I did some exploring in places where I had reason to know terror lives. I've got this place that I don't believe three living Nordic men besides myself have ever seen. It isn't so very far from the elevated as distance goes, but it's centuries away as the soul goes. I took it because of the queer old brick well in the cellar, one of the sort I told you about, the shacks almost tumbling down so that nobody else would live there and I'd hate to tell you how little I pay for it. The windows are boarded up, but I like that all the better, since I don't want daylight for what I do. I paint in the cellar, where the inspiration is thickest. But I've other rooms furnished on the ground floor. A Sicilian owns it, and I've hired it under the name of Peters. Now if you're game, I'll take you there tonight. I think you'll enjoy the pictures, for, as I've said, I've let myself go a bit there. It's no vast tour. Sometimes I do it on foot, for I don't want to attract attention with a taxi in such a place. We can take the shuttle at the South Station for Battery Street, and after that, the walk isn't very much. Well, Elliot, 
There wasn't much for me to do after that harangue but keep myself from running instead of walking for the first vacant cab we could sight. We changed to the elevated at the south station, and at about twelve o'clock had climbed down the steps to Battery Street and struck along the old waterfront past Constitution Wharf. I didn't keep track of the cross streets, and can't tell you yet which it was we turned up, but I know it wasn't Greeno Lane. When we did turn, it was to climb up through the deserted length of the oldest and dirtiest alley I've ever seen in my life, with crumbling gables, broken small-paned windows, and archaic chimneys that stood out, half disintegrated against the moonlit sky. I don't believe there were three houses in sight that hadn't been standing in Cotton Mather's time. Certainly, I glimpsed at least two with an overhang, and once I thought I saw a peaked roof line of the almost forgotten pre-gambrel type, though antiquarians tell us there are none left in Boston. From that alley which had a dim light, we turned to the left into an equally silent and still narrower alley with no light at all, and in a minute made what I think was an obtuse angled bend towards the right in the dark. Not long after this, Pickman produced a flashlight and revealed an antediluvian, ten-panelled door that looked damnably worm-eaten. Unlocking it, he ushered me into the barren hallway, with what was once splendid dark oak panelling. Simple, of course, but thrillingly suggestive of the times of Andros and Phipps and of the witchcraft. Then he took me through a door on the left, lighted an oil lamp, and told me to make myself at home. Now, Elliot... I'm what the man in the street would call fairly hard-boiled, but I confess what I saw on the walls of that room gave me a bad turn. They were his pictures, you know, the ones he wouldn't paint or even show at Newbury Street, and he was right when he said he had let himself go. Here, have another drink. I need one anyhow. There's no use in my trying to tell you what they were like because the awful, the blasphemous horror, and the unbelievable loathsomeness and moral fetter came from simple touches quite beyond the power of words to classify. There was none of the exotic technique you see in Sydney Syme, none of the trans-Saturnian landscapes and lunar fungi that Clark Ashton Smith uses to freeze the blood. The backgrounds were mostly old churchyards, deep woods, cliffs by the sea, brick tunnels, ancient panelled rooms, or simple vaults of masonry. Copse Hill Burying Ground, which could not be many blocks away from this very house, was a favourite scene. The madness and monstrosity lay in the figures in the foreground, for Pickman's morbid art was preeminently one of demoniac portraiture. The figures were seldom completely human, but often approached humanity in varying degree. Most of the bodies, while roughly bipedal, had a forward slumping and vaguely canine cast. The texture of the majority was a kind of unpleasant rubberiness. Ugh, I can see them now. Their occupations? Well, don't ask me to be too precise. They were usually feeding. 
I won't say on what. They were sometimes shown in groups in cemeteries or underground passages, and often appeared to be in battle over their prey, or rather, their treasure trove. And what damnable expressiveness Pickman gave the sightless faces of this charnel booty. Occasionally, the things were shown leaping through open windows at night, or squatting on the chests of sleepers, worrying at their throats. One canvas showed a ring of them baying round a hanged witch on Gallows Hill, whose dead face held a close kinship to theirs. But don't get the idea that it was all this hideous business of theme and setting which struck me faint. I'm not a three-year-old kid, and I'd seen much like this before. It was the faces, Elliot, those accursed faces, that leered and slavered out of the canvas with the very breath of life. By God, I verily believe they were alive. That nauseous wizard had waked the fires of hell in pigment, and his brush had been a nightmare-spawning wand. Give me that decanter, Elliot. There was one thing called the lesson. Heaven pity me that I ever saw it. Listen, can you fancy a squatting circle of nameless dog-like things in a churchyard teaching a small child how to feed like themselves? The price of a changeling, I suppose. You know the old myth about how the weird people leave their spawn in cradles in exchange for the human babies they steal. Pickman was showing what happens to those stolen babes, how they grow up. And then I began to see a hideous relationship in the faces of the human and non-human figures. He was in all his gradations of morbidity between the frankly non-human and the degradedly human, establishing a sardonic linkage and evolution. The dog things were developed from mortals. And no sooner had I wondered what he made of their own young, as left with mankind in the form of changelings, than my eye caught a picture embodying that very thought. It was that of an ancient Puritan interior, a heavily beamed room with lattice windows, a settle, and clumsy 17th century furniture, with the family sitting about while the father read from the scriptures. Every face but one showed nobility and reverence, but that one reflected the very mockery of the pit. It was that of a young man in years, and no doubt belonged to a supposed son of that pious father, but in essence it was the kin of the unclean things. It was their changeling, and in a spirit of supreme irony, Pickman had given the features a very perceptible resemblance to his own. By this time, Pickman had lighted a lamp in an adjoining room, and was politely holding open the door for me, asking if I would care to see his modern studies. I hadn't been able to give him much in the way of my opinions, I was too speechless with fright and loathing, but I think he fully understood and felt highly complimented. And now, I want to assure you again, Elliot, that I'm no mollycoddle to scream at anything which shows a bit of a departure from the usual. I'm middle-aged and 
No, I'm not easily knocked about. Remember, too, that I'd just about recovered my wind and gotten used to those frightful pictures which turned colonial New England into some kind of annex of hell. Well, in spite of all of this, that next room forced a real scream out of me, and I had to clutch the doorway to keep from keeling over. The other chamber had shown a pack of ghouls and witches overrunning the world of our forefathers, but this one brought the horror right into our own daily life. Gad, how that man could paint. There was a study called Subway Accident, in which a flock of the vile things were clambering up from some unknown catacomb through a crack in the floor of the Boylston Street subway and attacking a crowd of people on the platform. Another showed a dance at Copse Hill among the tombs with the background of today. Then there were any number of cellar views, with monsters creeping in through holes and rifts in the masonry, and grinning as they squatted behind barrels or furnaces and waited for their first victim to descend the stairs. One disgusting canvas seemed to depict a vast cross-section of Beacon Hill, with ant-like armies of mephitic monsters squeezing themselves through burrows that honeycombed the ground. Dances in the modern cemeteries were freely pictured, and another conception somehow shocked me more than all the rest. A scene in an unknown vault, where scores of the beasts crowded round one who held a well-known Boston guidebook and was evidently reading aloud. All were pointing to a certain passage, and every face seemed so distorted with epileptic and reverberant laughter that I almost thought I heard the fiendish echoes. The title of the picture was Holmes, Lowell and Longfellow Lie Buried in Mount Auburn. As I gradually steadied myself and got readjusted to this second room of deviltry and morbidity, I began to analyse some of the points in my sickening loathing. In the first place, I said to myself, these things repelled because of the utter inhumanity and callous cruelty they showed in Pickman. The fellow must be a relentless enemy of all mankind to take such glee in the torture of brain and flesh and the degradation of the moral tenement. In the second place, they terrified because of their very greatness. Their art was the art that convinced. When we saw the pictures, we saw the demons themselves and were afraid of them. And the queer part was that Pickman had got none of his power from the use of selectiveness or bizarrery. Nothing was blurred, distorted, or conventionalised. Outlines were sharp and lifelike, and details almost painfully defined. And the faces! It was not any mere artist's interpretation that we saw. It was pandemonium itself, crystal clear in stark objectivity. That it was, by heaven. The man was not some fantaiste or romanticist at all. He did not even try to give us the churning, prismatic ephemera of dreams, but coldly and sardonically reflected some stable, mechanistic and well-established horror world which he saw fully, brilliantly, squarely and unfalteringly. 
God knows what that world can have been, or where he ever glimpsed the blasphemous shapes that loped and trotted and crawled through it. But whatever the baffling source of his images, one thing was plain. Pickman was, in every sense, in conception and in execution, a thorough, painstaking, and almost scientific realist. My host was now leading the way down cellar to his actual studio, and I braced myself for some hellish effects among the unfinished canvases. As we reached the bottom of the damp stairs, he turned his flashlight to a corner of the large open space at hand, revealing the circular brick curb of what was evidently a great well in the earthen floor. We walked nearby, and I saw that it must have been five feet across, with walls a good foot thick and some six inches above the ground level. Solid work of the 17th century, or I was much mistaken. That, Pickman said, was the kind of thing he had been talking about, an aperture of the network of tunnels that used to undermine the hill. I noticed idly that it did not seem to be bricked up, and that a heavy disk of wood formed the apparent cover. Thinking of the things this well must have connected with if Pickman's wild hints had not been mere rhetoric, I shivered slightly, and then turned to follow him up a step and through a narrow door into a room of fair size, provided with a wooden floor and furnished as a studio. An acetylene gas outfit gave the light necessary for work. The unfinished pictures on easels, or propped up against the walls, were as ghastly as the finished ones upstairs, and showed the painstaking methods of the artist. Scenes were blocked out with extreme care, and penciled guidelines told the minute exactitude which Pickman used in getting the right perspective and proportions. The man was great. I say it even now, knowing as much as I do. A large camera on a table excited my notice, and Pickman told me he used it in taking scenes for backgrounds, so that he might paint them from photographs in the studio, instead of carting his outfit around town for this or that view. He thought a photograph quite as good as an actual scene or model for sustained work, and declared he employed them regularly. There was something very disturbing about the nauseous sketches and half-finished monstrosities that leered around from every side of the room, and when Pickman suddenly unveiled a huge canvas on the side away from the light, I could not for my life keep back a loud scream, the second I had emitted that night. It echoed and echoed through the dim vaulting of that ancient nitrous cellar, and I had to choke back a flood of reaction that threatened to burst out as hysterical laughter. Merciful creator! Elliot, but I don't know how much was real and how much was feverish fancy. It doesn't seem to me that the earth can hold a dream like that. It was a colossal, nameless blasphemy, with glaring red eyes, and it held in bony claws a thing that had been a man, gnawing on the head as a child nibbles at a stick of candy. Its position was a kind of crouch, and as one looked, one felt that at any moment it might drop its present prey and seek a juicier morsel. 
But damn it all, it wasn't even the fiendish subject which made it such an immortal fountainhead of all panic. Not that, nor the dog face with its pointed ears, bloodshot eyes, flat nose and drooling lips. It wasn't the scaly claws, nor the mould-caked body, nor the half-hooved feet. None of these, though any one of them, might well have driven an excitable man to madness. It was the technique, Elliot. The cursed, the impious, the unnatural technique. As I am a living man, I never elsewhere saw the actual breath of life so fused into a canvas. The monster was there. It glared and gnawed and gnawed and glared, and I knew that only a suspension of nature's laws could ever let a man paint a thing like that without a model, without some glimpse of the nether world which no mortal and soul to the fiend had ever had. Pinned with a thumbtack to a vacant part of the canvas was a piece of paper now badly curled, probably, I thought, a photograph from which Pickman meant to paint a background as hideous as the nightmare it was to enhance. I reached out to uncurl and look at it, when suddenly I saw Pickman start as if shot. He had been listening with peculiar intensity ever since my shocked scream had waked unaccustomed echoes in the dark cellar. And now he seemed struck with a fright, which, though not comparable to my own, had in it more of the physical than the spiritual. He drew a revolver and motioned me to silence, then stepped out into the main cellar and closed the door behind him. I think I was paralysed for an instant. Imitating Pickman's listening, I fancied I heard a faint scurrying sound somewhere and a series of squeals or bleats in a direction I couldn't determine. I thought of huge rats and shuddered. Then there came a subdued sort of clatter which somehow set me all in goose flesh. A furtive, groping kind of clatter, though I can't attempt to convey what I mean in words. It was like heavy wood falling on stone or brick. Wood on brick. What did that make me think of? It came again, and louder. There was a vibration as if the wood had fallen farther than it had fallen before, and after that followed a sharp grating noise, a shouted gibberish from Pickman, and the deafening discharge of all six chambers of a revolver fired spectacularly as a lion tamer might fire in the air for effect. A muffled squeak or squawk, and a thud. Then more wood and brick grating. A pause, and the opening of the door, at which, I'll confess, I started violently. Pickman reappeared with his smoking weapon, cursing the bloated rats that infested the ancient well. The deuce knows what they eat, Thurber, he grinned, for those archaic tunnels touch graveyard and witch den and seacoast. But whatever it is, they must have run short, for they were devilishly anxious to get out. Your yelling stirred them up, I fancy. Better be cautious in these old places. Our rodent friends are the one drawback, though sometimes I think they're a positive acid by way of atmosphere and colour. Well, Elliot, 
that was the end of the night's adventure. Pickman had promised to show me the place, and heaven knows he had done it. He led me out of that tangle of alleys, in another direction it seems, for when we sighted a lamppost, we were in a half-familiar street, with monotonous rows of mingled tenement blocks and old houses. Charter Street, as it turned out to be, but I was too flustered to notice just where we hit it. We were too late for the elevated, and walked back downwards through Hanover Street. I remember that walk. We switched up from Tremont to Beacon, and Pickman left me at the corner of Joy, where I turned off. I never spoke to him again. Why did I drop him? Don't be impatient. Wait till I ring for coffee. We've had enough of the other stuff, but I for one need something. No, it wasn't the paintings I saw in that place, though I'll swear there were enough to get him ostracised by nine-tenths of the homes and clubs of Boston. And I guess you won't wonder now why I have to steer clear of subways and cellars. It was something I found in my coat the next morning. You know that curled-up paper tacked to that frightful canvas in the cellar? The thing I thought was a photograph of some scene he meant to use as a background for that monster. That last scare had come while I was reaching to uncurl it, and it seems I had vacantly crumpled it into my pocket. But here's the coffee. Take it black, Elliot, if you're wise. Yes, the paper was the reason I dropped Pickman. Richard Upton Pickman, the greatest artist I have ever known and the foulest being that ever leaped the bounds of life into the pits of myth and madness. Elliot, old Reed was right. He wasn't strictly human. Either he was born in strange shadow, or he'd found a way to unlock the forbidden gate. It's all the same now, for he's gone. Back into the fabulous darkness he loved to haunt. Here... Let's have the chandelier going. Don't ask me to explain, or even conjecture what I burned. Don't ask me either what lay behind that mole-like scrabbling Pickman was so keen to pass off as rats. There are secrets, you know, which might have come down from old Salem times. And Cotton Mather tells even stranger things. You know how damned lifelike Pickman's paintings were, how we all wondered where he got those faces. Well, that paper wasn't a photograph of any background after all. What it showed was simply the monstrous being he was painting on that awful canvas. It was the model he was using, and its background was merely the wall of the cellar studio in minute detail. But by God, Elliot, it was a photograph from life. Hi, I'm Jesse. I'm Tom Homey. This is Wayne June. I'm Jim Moon of Hypnagoria.com. And I'm Mirko Stauch. Stauch. How do you spell your last name, Mirko? Stauch. S-T-S. <laughs> Just like it sounds. You're right. It's S-T-A-U-C-H. Ah, Stauch. Stauch, right. Ah, wow. It sounds that's, a, like, that's a good Lovecraft name. 
it, yeah, it sounds like one of those things when you know you're reading a comic book and and the guys are running out of uh, explosion sounds. You know, they've used the same explosion, kaboom, a million times. Stop. It's probably been used. Uh, that's I, I'm planning to name all my children after explosion sounds from comic books. <laughs> wow, <laughs> kaboom, Willis. I like it. <laughs> Kablowie! <laughs> I'm going to name my kid Thwip. Yeah, Thwip. Yeah, that's when somebody's shooting at you, right? Well, Spider-Man's web. Oh, right, mm. right. Okay. Uh, well, hey, we all just heard um, Jim Moon's reading of Pickman's Model by H.P. Lovecraft. What did you guys think of it? I thought it was uh, – it's always been one of my kind of favorite Lovecraft stories. It's not uh, a really over-the-top uh, uh, narrative necessarily. Uh, you kind of can see the ending coming, I think. But but mm -hmm. still, it's 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 quintessential uh, Lovecraft. And just as an aside, I think Jim did a, a really great presentation with it. Um, uh, being – Lovecraft Oops, myself, sorry. I was I was happy to hear his take on it was uh, was so true to I think what uh, what Lovecraft feels like and wants you to feel. So I thought it was great. And, and is is any is that going to be on your uh, podcast, Jim? Or um, well, that's my second attempt at reading it. It's one of the first full length stories I read when I started Hypnobobs, um, which you can get at www geekplanetonline.com or my own site which is www.hypnagoria.com <laughs> I hey you know actually I went and listened to that uh, original recording and it this is much the new one is much improved I think your edits were uh, terrible in that the the first one <laughs> yep um, you could sort of hear the sound quality change between the the edits and and it, I couldn't hear a single edit in in this one if you did edit it at all maybe it was just a perfect reading all the way through um and uh, the essay was fantastic. The essay at the beginning about ghouls um, and, you know, their sort of place in or mis their lack of place in sort of the canon of monsters. Uh, can you recall any of what you said there? Uh, well, basically, it's kind of in like computer games and role playing games. Ghouls are a staple monster. They're up there with zombies, werewolves, vampires. Mm -hmm. But there isn't actually much fiction about them. So I think the, the only other author who's wrote extensively about ghouls is a, a British author called R. Chetwind Hayes. I've um, never heard of that guy, other than on your podcast, you, you mentioning it. Uh, has he written anything that you've read? Um, I've read quite a lot of his books. He, um, he was active mainly in the 60s and 70s. Hmm. Most people know him because a set of his stories were adapted, uh, adapted by Amica into the anthology movie From Beyond the Grave and later on another one called The Monster Club are all based on his works hmm. what's his name again Jim? R. Chetwind Hayes R as in the letter R Chetwind yep. is the middle name and Hayes H-A-Y-E-S yes, yep got it okay I'm going to look into that um, I, I assume he was publishing novels or something because I, I i never come across his name in a no you said it was short stories right so where uh, was he, he published um he was mainly published in england though i think um in the u.s tor books 
um, did publish a lot of his work, I think, in the 80s. Because um, he, he wrote novels, he wrote short stories, and he also edited a fair few like themed anthologies. He did a nice set of like Cornish Tales of Terror, Welsh Tales of Terror, and Irish Tales of Terror, which are all mm-hmm. particularly fun. Um, he did a, a grand series for children for Armada Books, um, five volumes of monster stories, which were great fun. Uh, even though he did usually slip him up three of his own stories under various different names. <laughs> hmm. um, I want to ask, Mirko, you, you're a big listener to the um, HP Podcraft podcast. And I, I started yeah. listening to their version of that. Um, uh, how, I don't understand quite exactly how their podcast works. You said that, um, that sometimes they do full readings, but this one, they had little excerpts or something. Yes, did you they hear? They Sorry. usually uh, okay. They usually you um, start with an excerpt with the first mm-hmm. uh, few paragraphs, and um, they they are going through his works uh, in chronological order. Order of uh, starting or writing or publication? Order, no, no, order of writing. They oh. started uh, with a biographical uh, biographical sketch. <laughs> Is that right? Mm-hmm. I'm I'm sorry if I used the wrong words. Just no, correct it's me, perfect. Please. Yep. Okay. Okay, thanks. Um, and uh, they introduced themselves, and then they introduced their listeners to Lovecraft, to his biography. And then they started at 1917 with the tomb. And um, they always have excerpts and sometimes guest hosts. They are now about uh, the, oh, I guess, 102 episodes. Yes. So and, um, about where yeah. do you know about where this story lies in the chronology? Because I I just sort of pick stories at random, saying, "Oh, that one sounds interesting." All right, Pickman, something about that. It was written at uh, 1926. That's just when uh, the same 1926, 1927. This was the period after he uh, lived in New York, and when he was uh, divorced, and um, he wrote this story after Call of Cthulhu. So this was a very um, very hard working phase for him. Uh, he started his major stories and also wrote at the same time the essay uh, Supernatural Horror and Literature. Right, and uh, you know, um, uh, yet just yesterday I was talking to Wayne June about that um, and one of the novels that's in there. And I think we're going to get one from him for a podcast, <laughs> maybe talking about it. Cool. Yeah. Um, yeah um, now, I don't. Did you, this strike you as well? This story is very similar, I think, to another Lovecraft story. Um, I don't want to say it. I want to see if you guys had the same one. What Lovecraft story do you think this is fairly similar to? I know Tam, you've only read one other Lovecraft story, so <laughs> right. don't don't say the Crawling Chaos because I think this has n- very little similarity. <laughs> I think maybe my my first. Uh impression would be uh maybe the music of eric zahn because that's what i was gonna say yeah and an individual who is um you know sort of uh, starting to touch on those dimensions that he wished he hadn't yeah and he's an artist too you know artist in a sort of a rundown part of town that he can't find did you notice that as well that he could, you know, the, the, the guy could never find the street again. Same, yep. same with this one. He says, I, I probably could never find that street again anyway. Um, excuse me. This is also in the festival. Um, ah. And 
he, there's a uh, um, person, a narrator, visits um, Kingsport, was, I guess. Kingsport was this uh, Marblehead in New England. And he describes his entering of the town with um, not nearly the same words, but uh, just with a similar setting. And this is a, a topic that pops up in Lovecraft stories very often, that architecture um, does the first is a, a, a his connection to reality and mm-hmm. we maybe come to that later to talk about his aesthetic uh, theory yeah. that pops up here in Pigman's model yeah i and, love uh, i love that the all that conversation that that's in there about aesthetic theory yeah. cuz i always want to talk about art and nobody ever wants to talk about art with me i don't know why that is so hopefully we'll get some out of this story <laughs> you should, should move you should should uh, take a trip to boston <laughs> maybe there's some and uh, some some people in the art club who know Pigman, <laughs> <laughs> or used to know Pigman, that, but they don't used hang to with know Of course, <laughs> or you find the the way down to the land of deeper slumber, and um, this is might be this is a little spoiler alert, but Pigman pops up once again in a later Lovecraft story. Ah, yeah. yeah. But we come to that later, I guess. Don't uh, Tam, Tam, you just read um, the the comic book that uh, I was telling everybody to get. Uh, what was it called? Neonomicon? Yeah. Did you notice the Pikmin reference in there while you were reading it? No, but I mean, the Neonomicon has all kinds of tunnels and stuff. It it did remind me of that, actually. Yeah, it's a little bit similar, but also um, on the shelf, I think, in in the... I think it's in the store uh, that they go to, there is a... Oh, no, no. It was a a book, I think, in in the the guy who's selling Aklo... Um, he's got a copy of a book called uh, Pikmin's um, Neurotica or Necrotica. Yeah, Necrotica, like death. Mm-hmm. Erotic. <laughs> it's like, ew! He, he, he didn't just take pictures of ghouls eating. <laughs> he took pictures of ghouls doing other stuff. It, you know, I, didn't, <laughs> I didn't know what a ghoul was. I thought a ghoul was just like a generic monster until yeah. uh, Jim Moon's introduction. I had no oh, idea what it was. Yeah, it's like uh, I've always thought of them as, as they're kind of like zombies. I, I think Jim, you said that in in your your review. Night of the Living Dead is they're called ghouls, right? That's right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's an Arabic word, and originally they are a, an Arabic monster. Um, Razak meant, that character from the the comics is has that name, right? The that's Bat- right. Yeah, yeah. Batman uh, enemy or whatever. Mm. Is he an enemy? Ally? Neutral. Bit of both. Mainly yeah. an enemy. <laughs> uh, yeah, so this is it came in through Rudyard Kipling, is that right? Is that what you were saying? Uh, no, uh, Richard Burton. Richard Burton, yeah. 101 Nights. Uh, mm-hmm. see, they're in as well. Um, and it's Burton's translation that sort of, I think, I remember I brought the term into the English language. Uh, um, and then, particularly in the Victorian period, there was a a great fascination with all things funeral and uh, death related. <laughs> and um, this idea of a, you know, a monster that lived in cemeteries and fed on the dead uh, did sort of, you know, came to the Western world and took hold. You know, one of the, one of the scenes in this story that are, are, are described over coffee, I guess it is, um, <laughs> is it in a restaurant or somebody, I think it's in a restaurant or something, cafe. Um, I'll the, at his house. I think it's I think it's at a cafe, isn't it? 
we have Does a he call for coffee. Sorry. We, uh, we have a German audio drama version. Uh-huh. Um, it's very good. I just purchased it on Wednesday, mm-hmm. and um, they uh, Thurber and Elliot go to Thurber's home. Ah, so he must. Elliot, uh, I think somebody was saying, maybe it was in the HP Podcraft, that that Elliot was a famous person. Uh, There was a famous family. Yes, yes. In Thurber as well. Um, Oh, okay. I I got a copy of um, the Penguin Classic Edition of uh, HP Lovecraft's Thing on the Doorstrip and Other Weird Stories. And they are annotated by, of course, S.T. Joshi, who is a famous, maybe the famous. uh, Lovecraft scholar, and mm-hmm. he wrote this huge biography, um, I Am Providence, The Life and Time of, Times of H.P. Lovecraft, uh, and was by Hippocampus Press. Okay. And he annotated this, and um, the names Lovecraft picks up in his stories are always very um, famous New England English names from New England stock, and um, to, huh? So you're in come to my, to my first difficulty in translating. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. Oh, you're reading you're reading a translation for, in German and then you're translating back into English. I can't because I'm thinking about it. Um, Sh- this is show off. I <laughs> know. <laughs> um, if he if he if he takes takes this this particular names like Pigman. Or Thurber and, and Elliot, they have always well-known New England names uh, from new, uh, well-known New England families. And this is very important for him. And I have to say uh, to um, the audio drama in German, if I can throw it in here. Yeah, yeah. If you don't mind. Um, I've, heard, I've listened to three different versions versions. That's Jim Moons, of course, mm-hmm. and um, uh, two German versions, one by read by Dirk von Luftsko. I don't know his name. He's a singer in the band Tokotronic, and um, he made two actually uh, audiobooks. Uh, one was the Pigments Model and uh, the music of Eric Zahn, and he just narrated it, is correct, narrated it without drama. Yeah, just straight reading. Yeah, just straight reading without um, a climax at the ending. But it was not that bad. I liked it. And then I purchased a uh, via Amazon a um, the audio drama version. Um, and this is made by a company that has already put out about seventy audio oh. dramas, all classic horror stuff. Uh, two other Lovecraft pieces like. Uh, uh, the case of Charles Dexter Ward and the Temple, and they also do Robert E. Howard stuff, all in audio drama. And the narrator was um, Dietmar Wunder. He's a famous um, voiceover artist. You know, we we don't watch English movies in the original language. We always have voiceovers. Yeah. And this voiceover artist always uh, do um, uh, audiobooks and audio drama as well. Who is his Hollywood counterpart? That's it. His Hollywood. No, this is very. This was a disturbing experience because his Hollywood counterpart is Daniel Craig, James Bond. (laughs) Yeah. James Bond (laughs) reading H.P. Lovecraft. I love (laughs) it. No, no. It it goes goes on. This comes more more disturbing because 
Um, he also is Edward Norton at American History X. And um, he does audio dramas like uh, uh, Star Trek Vanguard, Don Wilslow, Jeffrey Deaver and stuff, and Punktown, Punktown, by the way, by Jeffrey Thomas. Hmm. But his counterpart in that I recognized was Omar Epps. You know Omar Epps? Oh, yeah, yeah. He's, he's a foreman in House MD. So the, the I immediately associated um, Thurber being... A well-suited black man. Hmm. This was this was quite uh, a disturbing experience because yeah, it's un- a nor- a, not a normal uh, Lovecraftian character. Did not- he say there? He said uh, no Aryan man or no Nordic man. I think no Nordic said. man. He said yeah, no Nordic ha- ha- man could find it other than me, of yeah. course. <laughs> and and I I didn't have a problem with that because I just could imagine uh, Thurber in this audio drama being a black man in a, in a, in a suit and, and with no hair sitting there. And, and <laughs> you know, this wasn't a problem for me. <laughs> I liked it. It's, it's a great audio drama. Hmm. Well done. Well, well done. Uh, I, I hope you give me some scans. I can put those up in the post. Yep. Um, now, I, there was one thing about ghouls that, uh, you know, Tam, you were saying you didn't know what a ghoul was. Um, I don't think I've read a lot about ghouls other than in this story, but my favorite depiction of them, other than in this story, is in uh, the Graveyard Book. You guys read that? It's oh, got yes, lots of ghouls yeah. in it. Mm. And they're great. They're they're hilariously evil and scary, and they they relish in their their eating. <laughs> and relish. Yeah, well, they had relish. Yeah, there's this great scene that I always talk about uh, in the book because uh, when you read it with little kids, they they freak out, right? And that is you you've got these lead-lined coffins, and they're they're you know this is like a smorgasbord for them, right? They're super happy to be in the in the uh, the new graveyard full of uh, old rotting bodies, and they've got lead-lined coffins, and because they're lead-lined, they they don't let all the juices out, so. Oh. <laughs> as the as the body decays, there's a, sort of a a slurry of um, of uh, sauce that uh, drips to the bottom, and they, they like, <laughs> and they like to tip them up, mm. you know, tip up the coffin, and just drink that before they get down to the 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 actual meal. It's, well, it's it's organic. You'll have to admit that. <laughs> <laughs> no preservatives other than the, the drool, uh, drool. formaldehyde. Um, and uh, I, I also think it's interesting that Gaiman sort of he matched the the way the the stories that I'm assuming Jim you you were saying I think at the beginning that ghouls they they steal babies and stuff like that and it might be for eating or it might be for making more ghouls right teaching them changeling yeah that's right mm. and that's sort of what happens in the graveyard book as well because he goes off with the ghoul through the ghoul gate. And he's in the land of the ghouls, and they're saying, "Oh, you're, you don't know how to be a ghoul yet. We'll teach you." Yeah, and there's a, a reference to that in um, the story too, mm-hmm. where where he uh, makes the explanation to whoever he's speaking to there, Thurber or whoever, that uh, you know how um, one of the paintings he uh, accomplished was called um, "The Lesson," and then mm-hmm. he just <laughs> describes it as having. Uh, 
uh, a, a ghoul holding court in a graveyard with a, a number of children and teaching them how to feed themselves. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> Terrible. Yeah. The other the other painting that I thought was really cool was train accident or something like that. It was it was a, a subway accident. Yeah, yeah, subway accident. Yeah. So the, in in Boston, I couldn't figure out for a while that oh, it's the L. They're talking about the elevated train, right? But there's also the subway. Um, yes. And in the subway, you have a subway accident. <laughs> All these bodies <laughs> lying around. Oh, it's a feast for ghouls, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, how can we never hear about uh, all these chewed, half-chewed-up bodies uh, being discovered? Is this being suppressed, do you think? or <laughs> What's going on there? Yeah. Maybe they clean up after themselves? Oh, that could be, yeah. Well, you're gonna know. They, tunnel, they tunnel to get the coffins from beneath, so you never know they're gone. Apart from mm-hmm. the subsidence, which you get in old graveyards. There you go. <laughs> and, and the bones just uh, end up in the, dream, in the dreamland. If you read Dream quest for unknown Kadath. Um there is a, a, a huge uh, plateau with human bones all um, the, the, the veil of Panath is it mm. yeah and um, you're talking about the changeling um, Pigman gave one of the ghouls in um, the lesson it was was it the lesson yeah um, uh, I'm, I'm not sure. There is. Uh, he he talks about this Puritan family, uh, one holding the Holy Bible, and one ghoul, presumably the the eldest son, uh, uh, just grinning at the, uh, or just smiling at the, uh, the painter. And um, you you remember, and um, it has the uh, it has. Something like Pigman's face. He he has yeah. the features uh, of, of of him of himself. And if you read um, Dream Quest for Anon Kadath, Pigman appears as a ghoul. Huh. He has totally become a ghoul. Wow. Yeah. Cool. That's really so cool. So is Pigman yeah. a changeling? I guess. I, I'm you know, pretty sure. In, uh, I sent somebody. Who did I send the uh, Rod Serling Night Gallery adaptation? Who did I send that to? That was me. I watched that this morning, and uh, that was actually uh, they did a, pr- a pretty good job with that. Really I faithful, yeah. I think, especially uh, with that painting. You know, there there is that painting in there where you you get the sense that I mean, there, there's a lot of showing. Lovecraft stories are famous for a lot of telling and not a lot of showing. Yeah. But this one, uh, I think they did a pretty good job. Um, yeah, they they they, they uh, made a little more of the fact that uh, mm-hmm. that that Pikmin was you know not entirely human in yeah, that in, in that gloves, version. Right, he's wearing gloves to hide his yep. his uh, development. <laughs> yep. <laughs> um, I never watched this. Episode oh well, I'll, I'll I'll see if I can send it to you. It's um. Oh, it's it, on Hulu too. Oh, is it? Okay. Yeah. Well then. Uh, and uh, who who played Pikmin in that? Wasn't that was that Bradford Dillman? I think. Yeah, yeah, some one of those '70s actors who you never hear from anymore. <laughs> yep, he did a really good job. I thought. He yeah. Was, uh, and you know the other thing that's strange is they there's a a female protagonist in there who I guess is taking over the the role of the. Well, it's not quite in, in the adaptation. It's it's a got a framing story, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, which I think is pretty pretty well done as well, and that's set in the contemporary times, I guess the '60s, uh, late, I don't know, mid '70s, whenever that yep. show was made, and and I thought that that was well framed, but also the original story and talking about the painting and 
about the reluctant fascination of going down to see where he paints. I think I think it's a, a very solid adaptation. Yeah, they made a, a little more of it, and I think this is probably just a, uh, a a cultural thing due to the times, but they made a, a little more of the implication in the story that um, the ghouls uh, were not not only you know eating the corpses and feasting upon dead bodies but also uh, uh kidnapping, kidnapping women hu- yeah humans for procreation you know procreational so, purposes yeah yeah so that 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 added an, a, a kind of a, a a tinge of 70s horror to it i think that, <laughs> that maybe uh lovecraft didn't quite intend but i thought it, i thought it was uh you know still very very much uh in keeping with with what he's all about yeah well, the mythology they expand in um, the Night Gallery episode, it draws a little, I feel, on um, Shadow Out of Innsmouth. Cause yeah, it, uh, they, yeah. That's yeah. I think deep, you're right. That's what the Deep Ones do. They, uh, they're, they're looking to take um, human mates to, a, to increase their stock, as it were. Yeah, That's right. I, I hadn't thought of that. Mm. And, you know, I mean, in the story itself, some, some Pickman, in his defense, he, he says, some guy says, I'm on the downward slope of evolution or something like that. And he says, ha! He sort of laughs it off. Yeah. Um, but uh, I think Lovecraft would say that he, that the laughing off is not correct. Like he is on the downward slope of evolution. Right. He evolve, um, even if the character doesn't think that that's what's going on. Mind you, in okay. Dream Quest, no. uh, when he's shown, he is still painting as a ghoul. He appears. <laughs> with, he comes out of a cave holding a palette and a brush. <laughs> I love it. Now, um, uh, the other thing that I really, uh, you know, this is what I was talking about earlier, art. Um, so in the music of Eric Zahn, you, you get to hear the description of the art, and I think that that's really fun. Um, and, and I know, Jim Moon, we talked about, in a previous episode, we talked about uh, your, you described the unnameable, and sort of what uh, Lovecraft was doing with that story. He's, he's sort of addressing his critics. <laughs> um <laughs> And I think that that's true in this story as well. I want to read this uh, these two sentences for you. Uh, he says, But don't get the idea that it was all this hideous business of theme and setting which struck me faint. I'm not a three-year-old kid, and I'd seen much bef- like this before. <laughs> um, and he, in that scene, he's talking about um, you know, the, the frontispieces of, of books and how we all laugh at those. But when you get deep inside the book, there's a, a serious drawing, right? Or not, maybe it's not the cover of a magazine or something, right? And I was thinking, is this is he addressing, um, you know, the the lurid pulps uh, covers with the with uh, the lack of his covers on them? Is, is that what's going on there? Well, I, I hadn't thought of that, but you know, he makes references to a couple of pretty famous artists there: Doré, Gustave Doré, mm-hmm. who did did all the illustration for uh, the Raven. Uh, among other things. Oh, yeah, time. that's right. I forgot. He, he, those are great. <clears throat> yeah, and uh, Syme, I think, who who did he, was he, did he illustrate Dunsany, Jim? Dunsany, Dunsany. Yeah, and uh, there was a, there was another one there. Um, um, Angarola. Yes. Um, who's quite obscure now, and you can't see much of his work online, sadly, but apparently he um, wanted to illustrate Lovecraft's Outsider, but died before he could start. Damn. Wow. Some ghoul must have got him. 
<laughs> yeah, the the Dore are available. I think those are uh, that illustrated edition is on Gutenberg or somewhere because I was I was I was drooling over those images. Are just it's so great to see like somebody really reading deep into the text and yep. then drawing something. And then you say, oh, I didn't see that, right? And then, of course, when you go back and read the text, you've seen what they've drawn out. Yep. And that that just, uh, it's just, it, this is the power of illustration, I think. And uh, and he's sort of getting at it, uh, talking about the power of illustration uh, throughout the whole, you know, the whole speech. It's all about how how art can truly affect you if it is drawn from life. And yet, yeah, of course, yep. this whole story is presumably made up, right? Um, so yeah, he makes he makes reference too in there, in right in that section about uh, the 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 real artist can capture the the true lines of fear, and he sort of refers back to uh, his uh, uh, article uh, about the oh his essay supernatural in literature. Yeah, right. You know, actually, uh, the 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 true depiction of human fear, you know, the that strikes a chord within the, the I don't know um, uh, group memory, you know, the race mm. race yeah, race. Yeah. And it's it's uh, I I keep thinking that, that that essay is kind of his his um his take also like sort of a response to Aristotle's poetics on what the purpose of art is and what the purpose of s- storytelling is uh, as far as i know he wasn't an, uh, a a drawer or a musician he was a writer um and yep. he did poetry as well mm-hmm. but he was a writer and his he was not focused on the market he was focused on creating what he thought was really cool and and when i read his his more market-oriented stuff. I still love it, yep. uh, even if he's dismissive of it because of, because of its um, because of its sort of disdain for the conventional. And it seems to have paid off eventually. You know, if if uh, he was still alive, he would be uh, on the lecture circuit everywhere, right? Yeah, yeah. If I remember remember this correctly, um, the opening paragraph of Call of Cthulhu has been printed in a, uh, a famous uh, quotation book. Is it right? Mm-hmm. You can remember? Yeah. Yeah, so, some, yeah I must, must be, because it's a great um, it's a great first line, isn't it? I can't remember. What, what is it? Um, I got it here. Oh, it's a, uh, the most merciful thing in the world yes. is the uh, inability of the human mind to correlate all its contents. Or something along those lines. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's yes, right. This is so great. <laughs> doesn't he? Doesn't he include a quote from Algernon Blackwood there as well? Yes. Of yeah. such great powers, our beings there may be conceivably a survival, a survival yeah. of a hugely remote period when, and so on. Uh, and this is very well picked quote, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Now, you know, I, I, I was telling, um, yesterday I was telling Wayne that uh, I got an email from, from Algernon Blackwood's great-great-grandson. Wow. <laughs> wow. Yeah. And so I'm like, uh, hey, that's cool. I wonder if he's got any uh, old books lying around that haven't been looked at in a while. <laughs> Maybe he could uh, extract something and read it to us. That would be cool. 
It would be great. The, the last line in this story seems pretty uh, classic. Yeah, yeah, I think it is. It's um, it's you know, you sort of see it a, mi- a million miles away, don't you? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. But it doesn't but seem about, to hurt it. It's all about the atmosphere. And I, I was I was walking uh, home on uh, Thursday evening through uh, a couple of gardens around here to get to my house, and it was dark, and the moon was shining. And I was listening to the audio drama version, and man, I was scared. It was scared. <laughs> 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 damn it! It was so dark, and this happened. One, I'll happened just take the shortcut through this graveyard here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. A graveyard is nearby. So no problem, I could have done this. Um, but there was an, an, a similar experience with uh, uh, a reading at yoksotot.com by uh, Paul McLean, um, a website that deals with mostly with the um, role-playing stuff, considered mm-hmm. role-playing stuff. And they had a reading of uh, what the moon brings. And this was this was creepy as well. It was full Is moon shining. I don't know that. St- uh, is that a story or a poem? It's a short story. Short story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's cool. great. I'm gonna try and find that yeah. one. Yeah, always looking for more love, guy. One section of of this story that I that cracked me up were was uh, he was discussing uh, Pickman's paintings and um, was talking about one that he saw uh, in uh, trying to remember where it was. Anyway, the the subject of it was uh, the the bunch of ghouls were standing around <laughs> looking at a well-known Boston guidebook, and, <laughs> and, and and one of them was reading aloud and uh, and pointing to the uh, you know like a, a passage from the the guidebook, and they were all cracking up. They were like uh, uh, distorted with with epileptic laughter and. Uh, the the title of the picture was Holmes Lowell and Longfellow lie buried in Mount Auburn. <laughs> so it's it's you know I mean that's that's pretty deep that's pretty funny you know they're they're, they're laughing that at the reference of these three famous corpses that are that everybody is sure are, is are lying beneath Boston in in the Mount Auburn cemetery but. The ghouls know better, so they're just like <laughs> laughing their ghoulish asses off. What a picture! I thought yeah. that was great. I, I wouldn't mind to have some of these on my wall. Yeah. <laughs> Holmes was oh. a tasteous. No Longfellow. <laughs> that's that's it. That's in the, the graveyard book too, right? They 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 talk about um the when the ghouls are talking to each other, they address each other by the title of their first meal. So. Uh, <laughs> He's uh he's the emperor of all the Chinas or something like that and then there's another guy who was um, Longfellow or yeah it was you know sort of famous persons they've eaten and uh, it was just there is this sense of you know I guess it's a, a ghoulish sense of humor isn't it? <laughs> uh, <laughs> one of the opportunity uh, many appearances when Lovecraft writes tongue in cheek. Mm-hmm. You, you often have this in jokes, like uh, I, I can't remember who he was, but um, was it Robert Block or, or some or Barlow? They they wrote stories and they uh, killed each other in, in the story that they had a, a contract that one that Barlow could kill Lovecraft and Lovecraft could kill Barlow. His their avatars. I'm not sure. <laughs> 
if I'm spoiling. Uh, 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 Robert Block. <laughs> it was Robert Block. Robert Block, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So this is a, this is a very kind of humor, I guess. It's very good. And he always has this in-jokes and this tongue-in-cheek um, that I really love. If, and, and if you know it, you, you've got really something. Well, I, I, I want to read a lot more Robert Block. I'm a big fan of uh, what I've read. Um, you know, and he wrote he wrote later on a lot longer than Lovecraft did. He's, I guess he was a young guy when Lovecraft was getting up there. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I love the connections that you can find. And yeah, there is a mention of was it August Derleth is mentioned in here? One of the no, the other guy, um, Clark Ashton Smith is mentioned by name in this story. That's right. And and he was saying that he was a he was a, a painter as well. I didn't know Clark Ashton Smith was a painter. I thought he was just a a writer. I was a, a painter, a poet, and a sculptor. Um, hmm. There's a website uh, called The Eldritch Dark where you can see actually a lot of his surviving work. Um, his paint, his his paintings are a bit hit and miss for me. I think Lovecraft was being somewhat generous, but some of the sculptures he used to do out of um, basalt and what have you are, are genuinely quite odd. They have a look of like being genuine primitive artifacts of ancient demon gods and creepy eldritch totems. It's well worth a look. Hmm. Cool. Yeah, that, that sounds good. Uh, I, I get a lot of people saying, Jesse, why don't you talk about Clark Ashton Smith? The reason I don't talk about Clark Ashton Smith is I've not read a single thing by him, so uh, <laughs> maybe maybe we've got to find find a way to change that. What, what's, a, what's a real accessible uh, avenue into Clark Ashton Smith that's you know worthy? of uh, a good read. Um, know? There's a collection of short stories, I think it was called Out of Space, Out of Time. That's mm-hmm. probably um, his famous one, the most famous collection he did that has most of his best-known tales in it. Okay. Um, he wrote about yeah. ghouls as well. Um, <laughs> uh, one named Pikmin, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> he says, ah, that guy can't paint. <laughs> <laughs> Um, oh, I thought uh, I recognized his name, but I, I assumed that it was a different person. I, mean, no, I recognize him as a writer. Yeah. yeah, it has to be the same because they're they're always mentioned. And it's August Derleth, Lovecraft, and Clark Ashton Smith, the creators of the uh, the what is it called? The Mythos, I guess. Mm-hmm. Cthulhu Mythos. Yeah. Cthulhu Mythos. Yeah. Now, I'm not super familiar with. Uh, I guess Massachusetts history, but Cotton Mather is is mentioned by name a few times in this story. Apparently, he's like the guy involved with uh, the Salem witch trials. Is that is that? Yeah, he uh, um, supposedly knew um, a lot of the judges and was influential on uh, you know how they made some of their decisions. He, for one thing, um, sort of gave his imprimatur and his authorization to the use of, uh, something they called, um, uh, spectral evidence, which means they could admit evidence, uh, uh, of that people have submitted, uh, that were the result of dreams or visions or things like that. So, so he, he, he kind of played a big part in lending credibility to the whole phenomenon. Hmm. And so he, if 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 memory serves, how they they determined whether you're a witch, they that was the original waterboarding. They put you on a the witch on the end of a board, and she they dunk her underwater, and if she doesn't uh, 
If she, if she drowns, she's innocent. If she drowns, she was oh, you got you got to love that. It's not a prime example of due process. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, Steve Martin did a, a sketch on Saturday Night Live just like that. Oh, it's, did he? Yeah, it's it's uh, I, I'm impressed. Like this story packs in so much, you know, there's the humor, there's the history. I think I could, you know, walk around the North end of Boston. Now, if I had that street map, I might question what's under some of those tombstones, but I, I sort of, <laughs> I sort of have the sense of, you know, there's an elevated train here. We go over the hill. We don't want to walk up that. It's almost like he's, he's showing off how, you know, so many stories you read it you read the story and you get the sense that all these buildings exist in a fictional city that don't uh that aren't really connected by real streets he's talking about a real place yep he's yep. giving the evidence to try and make it so real and i think part of that that um that you know i i don't think i could find it again is a combination of uh, oh, is this a true story? And I wonder if I can go find that place. Well, he says I couldn't find it, and that explains why you can't find it, right? That's right. Yep. Uh, but it also gives. Well, um, a, there is a reason for that, though. Yeah. What's because that? apparently, um, I mean, Lovecraft, although we have this view of him as a recluse, he did travel widely and visited lots of places of historic interest. And apparently, the house Pickman lives in was based on what he saw while exploring a. <laughs> in Boston and apparently um, later he went back and he found the streets had been demolished which is why you couldn't find Pickman's house now <laughs> oh wow it's real yeah yep. he sort of did the same thing in the horror from Red Hook because he, uh, he spent some a short amount of time um, living in New York and Red Hook is in is in New York um, and uh, he, he sort of took his reaction and revulsion to the uh the the multiculturalism of the neighborhood and turned it into the horror from red hook yeah and 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 uh and in the story he as well h-e short, yeah h-e yes right it's a short story that he has written just after a long uh night walk through old old uh, new york and then he ended up in new jersey buying a, a small notebook and writing it down in just one draft. Nice. Yes. You know, I, I would like to read the horror Red Hook because uh, I have heard how how it connects up with a lot of his um, wacko uh, racist theories, but also is a, is a good sort of story in the same vein as this one. Yeah, it's, it's one of his best. I think it's, it, it, I think it's a little bit longer. Uh, I did a version of it for Audio Realms, you might ask. Right. Might ask Fred if he's got. Uh, I've got it somewhere here. I just yeah. haven't heard it yet. I'd like um, to hear that. Yeah, that should be good. Um, yeah, I, we should mention. You know, the uh, I think when I think of Lovecraft, I think of Wayne June because you did what five volumes was it? Was it five or uh, six? Six volumes of short stories, mostly. I think there's one. One is one of them is. Uh, wasn't one of the later ones a uh, Call of Cthulhu or something? Yeah, there's. I, I did. I did a bunch of them. Each each volume is about three and a half hours. Uh, the last one was. Um, oh, jeez, can't even remember. No, you, <laughs> remember don't, now. You done the Mountains of Madness? Yes, that was the last one. 
And that's un- that's his. He's only got the one novel, right? Is that right? I think. What well, Jim would probably know. Jim knows um, all. Let's see, he Jim. does. Well, there's at the Mountains of Madness, uh, which is pretty much a full-length novel. Uh, the Strange Case of Charles Dexter Ward, which is kind of borderline novel novella. Um, Dream Quest of Unknown Cadeth, which is again about novella, borderline novel length. And there's another one, Through the Gates of the Silver Key, which he co-wrote with E. Hoffman Price, which is the last of his Randolph Carter cycle. Right. Now, uh, the first Randolph Carter is the one we, we've done already, uh, which is um, uh, Statement, Statement of, of Randolph Carter. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's something that I, I know other people in other podcasts have addressed. But um, this story is, again, you know, Tam might not know this, but this story feels very atypical to a lot of other Lovecraft stories because of the way it's told. It's it's all dialogue, right? It's very this, unique, yes. Yeah, I mean... Yep. Other than statement, which also is you know one guy either talking or writing, uh, telling his story. This this is actually two stories. There's there's the the guy speaking to his friend who never speaks. And actually, when I first started listening to Jim's reading, I was thinking, why is he why does he make the two voices sound exactly the same? <laughs> it's because there's only one guy, <laughs> and we right. only get one side of the conversation, right? Yeah. So uh, he reads that, and then we get the story within the story, which is Pikmin telling his one-sided conversation. Yep. It's one-sided, I think, right? Is yes. It? Yep. Yeah. So yeah. you've got two yep. one-sided conversations, but it feels like uh, it's all, there's a lot of colloquial language and a lot of, um, you know, uh, I wouldn't chuck you over, you know, sort of um, very of the time, right? Yep. And, and it, uh, to us, it feels like, I think it feels like it's um, it's old fashioned. But if you think about it, at the time, this would be very just regular, regular talk. Casual, I would say. casual yeah. speaking, really. Yeah, mm-hmm. casual speaking, and and that that would lend it a kind of credibility that that you don't see uh, in, I guess, the pastiches now, where everybody, you know, they always said it in the 1920s. Or then, I, I would love to know what Lovecraft would do. I, I still think he could do something with today's, uh, you know, because we, we think of ourselves as sort of enlightened. We got Wikipedia. We can look things up. But he he had a massive amount of resources, it seems, to do all the historiography and studying. Um, he must have been he, – he, he should have been able to do something today with what we've – you know, the technology we've got. He just would have had to hid, hide them away in a farther place, I think. Yeah, I've uh, um, I've often wondered what he would have developed into had he lived and kept on going. Uh, I think it was in Joshi's work that I read a, a, a comment or a train of thought that uh, Lovecraft was sort of in the midst of, of losing his uh, uh, love of, of the aristocracy and, and his snobbishness and perhaps mm-hmm. – Perhaps even you know his his prejudices. He was, yeah. he was seemingly starting to wind down on that, and it would have been fascinating to see how he grew. Even even if he just you know lived out his own lifetime, not to mention what he would be like in this culture. I'd be almost afraid. <laughs> I mean, I'd be really afraid what what H.P. Lovecraft would do if he was you know a child of the '60s, '70s, and '80s. Yeah, it seems. 
Oh, sorry. There, there is a, a novel, The Lovecraft Chronicles by Peter Cannon. Peter Cannon is also a Lovecraft scholar, and he um, sets his um, date of death is in the 1960s. So he, he um, after the cancer was diagnosed um, in Lovecraft, he just uh, he traveled to, to England and stayed there. This is this is Peter Cannon's version of what would hmm. happen with Lovecraft, and um, there is a, a movie picture of Reanimator <laughs> and uh-huh. uh, a book that he he was um, supposed to do the cancer of superstition. Um, this is he he had some drafts uh, of this book, uh, a book against astrology and against um, magic and against this and that. Um, we we know that. Lovecraft was planning this book, and Peter Cannon uh, just shows in, in his little novel, it's about uh, 200 pages, uh, what Lovecraft did in England, or would have done in England. Hmm. So there, there is um, so speculation. speculation. Yeah, yeah, yeah it, it, it is interesting because he is a he is an intellectual giant, sort of self-taught, and you know peculiar in his own interests to you know a, a large degree and he i can see him developing out of you know stupid racism it's just it's it it, it you, you work on the ideas long enough and you say well wait a second this isn't really true this isn't really consistent this is just sort of ideology it's not based on some something real and and so the stuff that's in there, I don't know if, if we can see a progression. I haven't read enough of Lovecraft to see a progression uh, from the stuff. You know, uh, one of the stories you read, Wayne, there was uh, Mr. Niggerman was the, the name of the cat. Um, yeah, that which, that, is, which was based on his real pet right, cat right. Which, of that name. Right. Now, I, I would assume that uh, that uh, that's... That that wasn't a particularly egregious example of his racism, but um, it seems you know Howard and them people people of great intellect, even if it is self-taught, they they tend to figure things out eventually. I think they they develop out of bad ideas because yep. they're thinking about them a lot. So it's I'm not to say it's a complete rehabilitation, but it's it seems to be. Uh, you you can see, you can sense how smart he is just just in the way the stories are constructed. Yeah, true. Yep, agree. Well, it's well, he was a man of his time, and he like he kept up with current thinking. And I think if he'd lived, his attitudes would have shifted because in the thought in the thirties and in the twenties, racism, well, that was the common attitude. Yeah, it was. I mean, uh, I mean in England. In England, one of the major paint companies had a, a shade of brown, which was marketed as nigger brown. <laughs> um, you know, people didn't see anything wrong with it. Um, That'd be a big seller nowadays, don't you think? <laughs> <laughs> Bring that back and see how, how they fare. <laughs> but it's kind of, I think, one well, the turning point in our culture for racist attitudes is the Second World War and Nazism. Um, yeah. And after that, there's a big shift about kind of and a big lot of examination about racial attitudes. When Lovecraft was writing, a lot of people in England, across Europe, in America, they were 
drawing on the same philosophies of like social Darwinism and social evolution and, and, um, and uh, different racial types that were, were, were you know, common. Uh, it was it was it was respectable scientific thought then. So if he had lived as he, you know, he was assigned, he had a big interest in science. He would have moved on. I feel quite sure. Yeah. And uh, apparently mm. there was some push in that direction uh, towards later life. So towards the end of his life, I guess. This is very, very difficult for a German to talk about racism. <laughs> Even uh, <laughs> um, my, my problem. I don't my, think you were born any time back then. You have you have no blood no, on your hands. Um, I, uh, no, no, of course not. But uh, when I first read the uh, biography by Sprague de Camp in Germany, this was the first book to get, and it was abridged because all this um, racist stuff and the race the discussion of racism was uh, uh was uh, put out you know excise right right they uh, didn't want to have the germans read that lovecraft was a racist so this is pretty disturbing and um i have a lot of discussions because um i'm in the love the german lovecraft society and we discussed racism and Lovecraft racism in particular, of course, and I just cannot see this um, in, a, uh, in, in a very, uh, oh my God, I'm missing the words, in an easy way. Yeah. You know, I think I think his, his character is, is way much more complicated, and if you, if you look back on his childhood, racism was common sense there. He was a, a really a wasp, a white Anglo-Saxon, uh, mm-hmm. Protestant, and this was given in, given to him by his by his parents, by his grandfather. But they didn't see this as evil. This was common sense, you know. Yeah. Uh, and slavery and stuff like that, and they they didn't have they didn't seem to have a problem with that. And you discussed this on a former uh, episode of SFF Audio about Robert E. Howard and mm-hmm. racism that appears there. That of course. Maybe he knew it was a bad thing that he was doing. He was not an agitator. He he threw in some some very hard uh, um, racistic uh, uh, texts in his letters, and also in his former amateur journal, The Conservative. And I think the it's really uh, the real strong impact on him came in New York when he went to New York when he had to move to New York and live there. In Brooklyn, uh, he always had contact to foreigners, foreigners in general, not only blacks, uh, uh, and he married a Jew. This is, mm-hmm. um, you know, uh, this is the opposite of his thinking. And I think that his racism is mostly a xenophobic, xenophobia. Yeah, it, it, I think it, it, totally, it totally informs his... his uh, uh, f- you know, fear of the of the strange, not only of the the strange, but the stranger. You know, mm-hmm. if 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 it's a a culture he's not familiar with, uh, then you know it's it's horrifying to him, and it it yeah. it they it kind of fed back and forth. I think you know, I mean, mm-hmm. his uh, his fear of strangers was incorporated into his writing and you know rightly interpreted as as racism but i don't think the point of it was racism the point of it right. is fear 
agree. I totally agree with you. This is what I was what I was trying to say. I think um, you said it well. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks. Because mm. because this xenophobia is, is a strong feeling, and and you have to go back to his childhood. He was a lonesome kid, but he had also friends. Um, you can can read this in Lovecraft. Lovecraft remember it. Um, this is an anthology of uh, uh, memoirs of friends of him, of his, and there you there you can see that he was nice to uh, Samuel Loveman, was one of his best friends. Loveman was a Jew, and Loveman was gay as well, and he hated gays, and he hated Jews. He was an anti-Semitic, but. He, he married Sonia Green, and Sonia Green was a Russian Jew. She was an immigrant and yeah. a Jew. And when, when she asked him, well, you have this, this, uh, this feelings towards uh, foreigners. Why did you marry me? He said, mm-hmm. well, honey, now you are Mrs. Lovecraft. Uh, Providence. Oh, you're not like them. them. That's right. Yeah, you're not like them because I, I married you. So yeah. the phobia right. came from his, his childhood. And this is this is a feeling that I, I'm quite sure that if he would not get in, uh, would not have got get into uh, contact with foreigners, he wouldn't be like this. Wouldn't have been like this. You know what I'm trying to say? Yeah, we get it. Uh, yeah, it's totally <laughs> clear. Because uh, I'm thinking about this a lot, a lot. This is a, a, a subject that has not been. Um, well discussed, I, I, I assume, because there is much more to explain. There is much more in his character to 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 look at to understand why he was that yes. kind of uh, racist. Yeah. One of the one of the things I, I like to um, think about with regard to Lovecraft and and other different kinds of writers is that Lovecraft himself is a, is the most prominent figure in Lovecraft in Lovecraft's own writing. So. With Robert E. Howard, you know, especially today, we get a lot of um, uh, stuff about him himself, and there are many stories uh, that I can point to, or at least a couple that I can point to and say, "Oh, look, Robert E. Howard is a character writing. Uh, you know, he's he's a he's playing himself, or someone has put him in a story where he is himself, and there's some sort of Hyborian style action going on in that story. That's right. That's a little bit, but the thing is, is for Robert E. Howard, he's got a bunch of different genres, and he's got a bunch of different characters. Now, with Lovecraft, we don't get a lot of repeated characters other than uh, the ones we've mentioned, you know, the uh, Carter, etc. There's a few repeated characters, but the main character in all his fiction is Lovecraft himself, so there is a, a, a tendency to mythologize the man and make the stories about him right he is the protagonist of all the stories and we don't do that with a with an author whose uh fiction is much more uh well known for the character so um let's take an example of who knows who created buck rogers i don't do you know who created buck rogers Mm, no nope. no it doesn't matter does it because we got buck rogers mm. um or um even uh i guess lester dent is better known now but he, he created doc savage right yeah um, but people don't uh, they do a little bit but we we much rather talk about 
Doc Savage himself because he is the character that's in all the Doc Savage stories. Well, Lovecraft yeah. doesn't do that. So we, we tend to see drawings of him. <laughs> and the only other guy who's like this, I think, is Edgar Allan Poe, where Poe himself has become the main character in Poe stories. Right? When we think of Poe, we a Poe story, we think of a guy with a mustache and a strange hairline and sort of uh, scary looking eyes, looking frightened and and doing whatever's action is going on. So there's I think there's a new movie coming out uh called The Raven, right? And who's the star? <laughs> it's Poe himself, right? Uh, yeah. Yeah, um, I think the but uh, they share similarities in that uh each of their own particular sets of writing, their own canon, um, really was sort of a first-person uh, narrative. And no matter who the character was in the stories, they all, they all shared uh, the same common outlook. So uh, no matter what story it is, you can tell it's uh, flavored by Lovecraft, or no matter what story that you read by Poe, you could tell it's it's that Poe flavored story. It's that macabre, uh, uh, just just total uh, in Lovecraft's face uh, case, uh, total fear, fear of the strange, uh -huh. fear you know of the strange um, uh, dimensions that he touches upon and in Poe of course it's 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 the the morbidity um so I've yeah no you know Poe Poe's Poe's life story and Lovecraft's life story we extract a value from those when reading the stories now my feeling is that as you as a kid you don't know you don't even know who, I ask kids all the time what book you're reading they always tell me the title and they don't know who wrote it Right. Yeah. Um, and when I'm a kid and I'm reading uh, some story and I, I'm the same way, I don't know who wrote it until some time comes by and I realize, hey, all these books with the great covers aren't all the same. But the ones with this guy's name on the cover, they, oh, they're actually better. I'm going to yep. follow the guy and not the covers. Right. And the, after a certain point, the cover doesn't matter as much, although I think it, art really does matter a lot, at least. For the the kid inside me who's, who wants to see the adventure, you know, say, oh yeah, that's what's going to be going on here, and I'm going to look for that in there. Um, I don't need the whole thing laid out for me, but give me that that one image to to go after. I don't I don't have an image for this story. Is there any illustration that you know of that? Because when I think of it, I'm now thinking of the the descriptions that we've been talking about of the paintings themselves. That's what I would be looking at. Is somebody looking at the painting and saying, oh my God, reeling in horror or laughing <laughs> in horror. Yeah. That's why I think the, the twilight, not twilight zone, the, uh, night gallery, the, night gallery episode, uh, did such a good job. They, uh, it fit right into the, the theme of the show night gallery. Mm -hmm. you know, yeah, it the, does. That's how they sort of presented each story anyway, represented by a painting in the gallery. So they had that going for them right off the bat. Um, and they did a great job with it. I thought it, uh, I don't know who the artist was that worked for the, the production company or for the show, but, uh, it did a, a pretty great job, I think of, uh, of representing, uh, Pickman's, uh, depictions. Yeah, I'm going to look more into that show because, um, I watched the, the pilot episode a while ago 
and it was a bit long-winded uh, for the story, but the paintings were really cool, and there was a very good use in the first episode, I think. Um, they had uh, some some somebody was dying, and he was he he was being poisoned or something and and the painting was showing what was happening outside so you would the the guy who had murdered him looked at the painting and it would show the graveyard right and then the next time he comes down the stairs it shows the graveyard but with the casket dug up and then the right. next one the casket is open and then you see somebody outside the door and it's gone right um, so I, I'm going to look into more of that, and I believe they've done. Steven Spielberg directed the one about the blind lady in the pilot. Oh, where she, where she sees, she gets an eye donation. Yeah, I think I remember that. Um, yeah. Oh, that's a cool picture uh, by Hans Bach of Pickman's model. I like that. Who uh, sent that's, that? That's, that's the famous one. Um, uh-huh. Even though it does look like a wolf with a mullet. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking a lion, but you're right. It, this is up front and party in the back. It's got a, it's got hooves almost, not quite, but uh, uh, that's a bit bigger than I thought. I'd like to throw in a quote, if you don't mind, by Winston Starrett, who said, uh, "But to me, Lovecraft himself is even more interesting than his stories. He was his own most fantastic creation." Yeah. <laughs> so that connects to what you said. Yeah, I think you're right. <laughs> yeah. It's very connected. And- uh, talking about Pigment's pictures, Pigment's pictures. Um, I wonder how one would uh, adapt this today. Uh, if there was a movie adaption, how would you do that? Because um, we've seen so much cruelties, and the story is a child of its own time. In 1926, we just had World War One, and uh, he, he always, uh, Thurber always says, "What a what a." hard-boiled dude he is he <laughs> presumably has been uh, as he is a world war veteran i guess um so he, he cannot be easily shocked uh and when he says what a badass he is he uh, wants just to to uh to make sure that, what was that to make sure um that the the his that Pit- pigments paintings are very awful very very cruel and but today, we, with mass media and um, certain websites and, uh, of course, the experience of uh, the Khmer Rouge and the uh, Vietnam War and the Second World War, um, how would one adapt this story? Because I, I don't think you can show anything very striking or shocking on, on a picture today to people today, isn't it? Yeah, that's true. I, I think... Uh, of there, there have been a, n- a number of attempts, I think, to uh, to make movies of uh, of Lovecraft's work, and I don't think any of them have been particularly successful. It it would be hard to, I think, put into that medium to 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 grab the kind of atmosphere that he creates just by his vocabulary and just by his uh, uh, overuse of these uh, terrific ab- adjectives. Mm-hmm. That, you know, You'll find a sentence with, you know, 47 weird adjectives <laughs> in it and you know, how, how you would put that into into uh, cinematic form. I, I don't know. Well, I, I was um, I was impressed by the the Night Gallery adaptation. I was also impressed by the 
the Marvel Comics adaptation for, I think it was Tower of Shadows. I, I sent that to somebody. Yeah, you sent um, that to me, and I, I haven't actually looked at that yet. But. Well, that's pretty good. I'll, pu- uh, I'll put up a, a pick from that on the post, and um, that's that's one that I think it does a pretty good job of it. It's It has more dialogue uh, than even the story does, but um, it's got it's got... You know, I I wouldn't say the ghoul looked great, but I like the way the guy's eyes are wild when he's talking about it, and it's <laughs> it's cool. Um, now, uh, any closing thoughts? Because I want to talk about what what the next Lovecraft story should be. Uh, well, on the thing of adapting Pickman's model, I think aside from the problem of how do you show the paintings and make them shocking, the big problem is is the ending, which you can see coming, but that's yeah. partly because that kind of <gasps> It was a photograph from life has been yeah. ripped off so many times since. Yeah. Um, I think yeah. <clears throat> the story has its power, but the twist ending has diminished because it's a twist you'll have seen somewhere else before. Yeah. Right. Uh, it didn't bother me. Like it didn't that. bother me at all that that I, I saw it coming. I mean, it was just what I expected, but it. Uh, yeah, it was fine. I liked it. I, I think. I think it. You don't go to. For the for the ending necessarily, although I have had some, I think the rats in the walls has a fantastic ending and it's mm-hmm. uh, it was un, uh, totally unexpected for me. So well, it was like was like in the uh, an antique uh, Greek drama where you know where it's going to and you know how it ends, but you want to know how the uh, uh, the writer did his stuff, right? Yeah. 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 That's that's one of the reasons I'm a big fan of putting the story at the beginning of the show. Because then we don't have to use the stupid word that I really hate. Spoiler! There's no way you can spoil. Nobody can spoil a Lovecraft story. You just have to read it, and then you'll yeah. enjoy it. Um, yeah, I, I, if it can be spoiled. It's probably not a very good story, is my thinking. It's not worth reading or watching. Or it's not worth rereading. Definitely not worth rereading. This one was worth rereading. I read yeah. it several times. I was gonna say Thurber seems like a, a molly coddle these days. I mean, he's just scared by a couple paintings. He doesn't seem very hard-boiled to me. <laughs> well, you haven't seen the paintings, Tam. If you yeah, had right. seen the paintings, you would, have, you would have dropped your shit. Maybe. <laughs> oh, I was going to also mention, uh, Joanna Rust wrote a short story, and the title is, It was a photograph from life, basically. <laughs> hey, and spoiler! She, <laughs> and she, she usually writes like super feminist stories, so I'd be curious as to what that's like. It's in an anthology called Cthulhu 2000, hmm. but I think it's out of print. I think Poe, uh, Edgar Allan Poe riffed on that theme too. For there's one, uh, one story I forget. Yeah, you've done some Poe uh, uh, collections as well for, um, for your audiobook case, and those are really great. You, I, I say voice of Lovecraft, but it's voice of Poe as well as Lovecraft. So. Oh well, good. <laughs> I'm I'm getting more and more <laughs> under my belt. So yeah, and and um, soon to be uh, what's his name, um, William Hope Hodgson. Yeah, we were talking yesterday about uh, about doing something uh, from him coming up for an upcoming podcast. Yeah. So looking forward to that. But uh, Poe did uh, did something on that theme where um, the painter was uh, was painting his wife. Uh, see if this sounds familiar and. Uh, he he was just painting uh, as he went along, maniacally painting more and more and more. It it began to take on more and more uh, 
perfection and and just a you know life itself and of course the story is while he's painting that and the painting is is coming to life so to speak his wife is fading and she ends up dead and <laughs> all he's got is the painting because he sucked the life force out of her and put it on the canvas poe wrote himself his wife to death that's what's going on, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> that, that reminds me of that Twilight Zone where the, the guy dictates into a tape recorder what he wants his ideal wife to be, and then she appears. And then, oh, uh, cool. Yep, I remember that. Remember to see that? Oh, that was a classic uh, one. Let me know what the name of that one is when you find out, because I want to re- okay. watch Okay. Um, it's more so, humorous. So what should the next uh, – po- uh, not post story. The ne- well, maybe we should do a post story, but – what should the next Lovecraft story be? Because I, I'm sort of doing this scattershot, and maybe that's a wise thing. has to be short enough that we can get somebody to do their narration for the podcast. And um, other than that, there's no other restrictions, I don't think. What's the next one? Anybody got a suggestion? Boy. Beyond uh, the Wall of Sleep. Beyond the Wall of Sleep? Great suggestion. It's yeah, a good one. I've not one. read that. Yeah, 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 definitely. Short, short, and it's a good one. If a, and if I remember this collection correctly, it's a bit more uh, SF related, isn't it? Oh, okay. Yeah, it's love, Lovecraft in his cosmic vein. Yeah, <laughs> and that's a cool way. <laughs> that's what I want. I, 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 I yeah, I, I like the other one. Uh, the other one we did was cosmic as well. What was it? Uh, crawling chaos. The crawling chaos was cosmic, mm. wouldn't you say? Psychedelic. Psychedelically cosmic? Yeah. Okay, so that's it. Alrighty. Cool. Excellent. Does that have Cthulhu in it? I don't know. Uh, no, it's, it's an early story. Beyond the Wall of Sleep. Um, hey, Tam, did you record? Yeah, I did. Oh, good, good, because I've got it recording now, but I'm going to hang up because i got to go to work. Okay. Uh-oh. All right. And then, um, okay. so a world of his own is the Twilight Zone title. A world of his own. Okay. Yeah. Uh, send, oh, there it is. Thank you. Um, I will uh, check that out. I also appreciate the art you guys sent. Uh, oh, Jim sent. Um, one for me. You did some art. Oh, that's you. Yep. Wow. That's wow. Nice. You're like Clark Art, art Ashton Smith. <laughs> <laughs> Podcast and draw. That's a good one. Oh yeah, that's your website. Yep, yep. I did a series of Necronomicon woodcuts. Um, some, wow. Uh, the H.P. Lovecraft Historical Society ran a competition ages ago because they were going to do a, a complete uh, facsimile of the Necronomicon, and they were touting for art and passages, and um, I got started, ended up doing four of these sort of Necronomicon-inspired woodcuts, which I thought... Cause in the history of the Necronomicon, Lovecraft mentions Pickman and says... Um, his ancestor owned a copy of the Necronomicon, and I thought it'd be fun. His ancestor had done illustrations for the John D version that came out in the 16th century. <laughs> awesome. That's good. It's very good. Um, let's, um, yeah, I guess that's a woodblock, not a painting, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> 16th century uh, version of a, of a Pikmin. <laughs> 16th century Pikmin. <laughs> This has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com.